All right. Um, we'll get started. So originally, uh, I planned on finishing First Timothy today, and then I started studying it and realized that's not going to happen. So um, I'm going to split chapter 6 into two parts, and this morning we'll begin reading in verse 1. It says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Okay? This is one of several places in the New Testament where instructions are given to Christians who were slaves. That word bond servants in Greek is the word doulos. It means slave. But before I explain the instructions that Paul is seeking to give them, I want to make some general comments that I think are very important. First, the Bible never endorses the kind of slavery that existed in American history. Okay? In fact, the African slave trade is something that was punishable by death in the Old Testament. God did not allow people to be stolen and sold as property. Exodus 21, verse 16, it says, Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. That's pretty clear, right? What the Old Testament did allow was voluntary servitude. And you have to understand there was no such thing as a middle class for thousands of years because they didn't have modern economics. Some people owned land and animals and everyone else worked for those people. So you were either, in Bible language, a master or a servant. And that's just how society worked in the entire world. Okay? So when Paul wrote 1 Timothy, there were more than 50 million slaves in the Roman Empire. If the apostles told those Christian slaves to revolt against their masters, the Romans would have immediately crushed the early church. And Paul seemed to know this because he encouraged those Christian slaves to honor and respect their masters. Notice he says, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So he's basically saying, we're not going to make this an issue, okay? And yet, that's the first thing. Second thing, and yet, the seeds of abolition, of the end of slavery as an institution, can be found all over the New Testament, especially in Paul's letters. And I'm going to argue that the Bible has had more impact on the institutions of slavery and other forms of tyranny 
than anything else in the history of the world by far. It was good Christian biblical ethics that took down the institutions of slavery around the world. It is the influence of Christianity that has helped to dismantle the caste system in India. And I would say that any tyranny that currently exists in the world is being influenced by pagan or atheistic beliefs. And so if you hear the nonsense that the Bible supports slavery, I'm, I'm trying to set the record straight here, okay? Paul in this verse describes slavery as being under a yoke. What works under a yoke? An animal. That's a nod to the dehumanization that is felt by slaves. And what does Paul say in Galatians 3? He says, in Christ Jesus there is neither slave nor free. And so he's setting the precedent that the gospel spiritually undermines and will eventually dismantle barriers in society like race and class. So no, the Bible is not pro-slavery. Okay. Verse 2, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So we have a different system in our society, and so for our purposes, it's probably best to think of this in terms of business relationships, okay? So for, for this to apply to us, I want you to think in terms of employers and employees or contract labor, and the message here is not to take advantage of people because they're Christians. And you may think, well, who does that? Well... We all kind of do it. <laughs> um, as an example, all right? So let's say you find out that someone is a Christian business owner. What do you do? You hope for a discount, right? Okay? And Paul is saying, don't do that. Pay a fair price. All right? The worker deserves his wages, right? So we shouldn't be going around expecting people to give us something because... You know, because it's the Christian thing to do. And we all have made that, I mean, you know, people always think because I'm a pastor, they're supposed to give me a... No, I always have to tell them, I want to pay you what you deserve to be paid. Please don't do that, right? But there are a lot of people that will take advantage of it. And he's saying, serve all the better. Go above and beyond. If you are a brother or sister in Christ, then respect and honor people for what they're doing, okay? Now, Paul continues, he says, teach and urge these things, meaning, this is kind of a summary, he's switching gears, he's saying, I want you to do all the things that I've said in this letter until now. And now we come to the final section of the letter, and Paul returns to the subject of false teachers. Verse 3, he says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ 
and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Okay, so puffed up means filled with smoke. So they think they know what they're talking about, but it's only hot air. It says he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So I want you to notice here, the problem is not controversy, but an unhealthy craving for it. And there's always going to be controversy in the church, but craving it motivated by a belief that godliness is a means of gain. What does he mean? Because that's not actually very clear in English, but what Paul is talking about when he says a means of gain is money. He's talking about actual financial gain. And he's saying that that's what these teachers are actually wanting. That's what they're after. In other words, these men are teaching bad doctrine, they are dividing the church, and they are motivated by greed. Okay? Bad doctrine, dividing the church, motivated by greed. We know that the city of Ephesus was very wealthy at that time. And we already know that Paul has been concerned that some of the leaders were using the faith as a way to exploit that wealth. Paul has defended the pursuit of godliness earlier in the letter, so he's okay with that. He wants the church to do that, to pursue godliness. But what he's saying here is that greed corrupts that pursuit. Another way to say it is this. If you think that following Jesus is a way to get blessed financially, then you're missing the point. You're doing it for yourself and not for God. And that is the problem that is very common in Christianity right now with all the health and wealth teaching that is out there. You know, if you do this, if you have enough faith, if you follow Jesus, if you, you know, and it has nothing to do with Jesus. It's all about us kind of magically getting something from God. And that's exactly what he's addressing. Verse 6. But godliness with Contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. 
but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Contentment basically just means being satisfied with what you have. But to be clear, Paul is not saying that people who are destitute should be content with their extreme poverty. Okay, sometimes this has been twisted into saying that, well, the poor just need to get over it, right? No, we know that's not what he's saying because he says be content with food and clothing, right? So he's not telling starving people to be content. Instead, what he is saying is, I think this is an indictment against Christians who want more than they need, which if we're going to be honest, is the vast majority of American Christians. Okay? Every single one of us should feel some conviction on this point. Why? Paul continues, verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You should look carefully at these verses, okay? So Paul is not condemning people for being rich. Notice that? He's not saying that it's wrong to be rich. Nor is he saying that money itself is evil. This verse is often misquoted, right? Money is the root of all evil. Have you heard that? That's not what it says, right? It says the love of money, right? And so those who desire to be rich, the love of money, what is that? That's heart language. So he's talking about the heart, And what is the danger? What is the risk of this love? What is the risk of this desire for money? He says ruin and destruction. They have pierced themselves, right? This is self-inflicted harm. He says if you are desiring and loving and chasing after wealth you are inflicting harm on yourself. You have wandered away from the faith. And this fits really well with the teaching of Jesus. Paul's not making this up, right? In the parable of the sower, Jesus talks about some of the seed falling among the thorns. And he explains by saying, As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which we call the synoptic gospels, tell the story, all three of them, of the rich young man who walked away from the faith, um, or walked away from Jesus, sad, um, because Jesus says, I want you to sell everything and give your money to the poor. 
And in all three of those stories, Jesus says to his disciples after the man walks away, he says this, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say impossible, right? And then his disciples ask him that question. Well, that's impossible then, right? And God, Jesus is like, well, without God, all things are possible. So God can save a rich person. But we should pay very close attention to this because, please hear me, <clears throat> by the world's standards, Americans are all extremely wealthy. The poorest 20% of Americans, the poorest among us, consume more goods and services than the national averages for all people in the most affluent countries. And in places like Haiti, in Afghanistan, in Uganda, people are consuming 30 times less than the poorest Americans. Okay? Now, I say this, I mean, we are where we are. We live where, I'm not trying to make anybody, I'm just trying to say, look, I say this because so much of how we think about contentment is influenced by what we see around us every day. And it might change a little if you experienced some other part of the world. It is difficult to be content when we see so much wealth around us all the time, right? And the heart problem with this is a tendency to believe that God is holding out on us, that there's something that He that other people are getting from God, and I'm not getting it. And so we start to focus on all the things that we believe we deserve. And that problem is confronted squarely by the Tenth Commandment. Do not covet. Do not covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's donkey, right? Don't covet. Do not desire the things that you see other people enjoying. And you may be thinking, well, that's easy for people to say when they've got everything they want. Right? And I hear you. But this is what the Bible says will make us truly happy, to be content with what we have. And I want to suggest to you that it's not just the Bible. Modern science, modern psychology actually defends this view. Because you see, by and large, people in poorer countries who aren't surrounded by wealth live happier, more socially fit lives than people in most affluent countries. 
And if you want to see this for yourself, you can get on YouTube and you can watch as a free documentary. I mention it at least once a year because it was so impactful for me. Okay, so sorry, I apologize. I'm mentioning it again. But there's this documentary called God Grew Tired of Us. And it follows three young men, three orphans from South Sudan. And they were given about 10, 15 years ago, an opportunity to travel to the U.S. and they were provided with a place to stay and jobs and education opportunities, but they were miserable. They were excited at first for the unknown, the opportunity, but as they followed these young men, they were getting more and more depressed because they missed the community, they missed their home, they missed their friends back in the orphan camps in Sudan. And listen, guys, I think deep down we know this, but our sin fights it tooth and nail. I mean, we've all heard the stories. We all know the stories of lottery winners who later will say, and it's almost all of them, will later say, that they wish they never won the money. And we're like, yeah, sure, I would love to try it out, right? I'll see for myself, right? But we've all heard it. We all see the dysfunction of celebrities who have everything they thought they ever wanted. And they're still sad. The only way to fight this heart problem is with the gospel. And that's spelled out for us clearly in Hebrews 13, verse 5. He says, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, Jesus, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So what's the writer saying? He's saying that what motivates the Christian to be content to see money as a tool and not as an object to be loved or desired. What is it that motivates that? It's the belief that Jesus will never leave or forsake you. That's that's it. In other words, Jesus is the answer to every potential problem that Paul is trying to address in this chapter. Remember that God, the Son, became a man and submitted Himself to the yoke of the flesh to ransom us from the slavery of sin and death. Remember that. Remember that Jesus humbled Himself, emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant and dying the death of a criminal to save us from sin and death. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? One of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes from Mere Christianity, he says it like this. He says, If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. 
So I'll, I'll end with this, okay? Because of science, we understand more and more about how the brain works, what's going on up there, the chemicals that are there. You know, what, is it, what does the brain look like when people are happy? What does it look like when they're depressed? What does it look like when they're anxious, when they're mad? Okay? Every temporary happiness that is offered by this world is nothing more than a rush of brain chemistry. That's it. It never lasts. And we also know that the more you experience something that makes you happy, the less happy it makes you. You adapt. It doesn't, it doesn't provide the fix that it did at first. But, and I 100,000% believe this to be true, our experience of God through Christ Jesus, that's not a rush of brain chemistry. That is something that is moving our soul. And scientists don't really understand the difference between our brain and our consciousness, right? <laughs> like there's something underneath there that separates us from the animals. I truly believe that. Like there's something there. Christians call it the soul. And there is nothing in this world that will move your soul except Jesus. He is the path to lasting contentment. He is the living water, the well that never runs dry. And the best part is his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, I don't have the words to make you sound as beautiful as you are. I don't have a way to convince anybody, even myself, that these words are true. But your Spirit has the power to move our souls. And I want to pray for each of us not that we would experience a momentary high, a momentary bit of happiness because we're listening to something that makes us feel good, but because instead that you would move in our souls to come empty-handed to the Lord Jesus and find Him to be the source of life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand aside.